on this episode of the Africa Whisperer. The one thing that I've learned, and I thank God all those things happened to me when they did. I thank God for them because they've taught me that evolution is a powerful tool. Hey, I'm Lika Sumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective. Alrighty, I'm so excited to introduce my guest for this episode of the Africa Whisperer because it's not very often that somebody has the incredible amount of talent that they have. They've achieved so much. And still, when you meet them, they're the kind of person who's going to be there to pick you up. Now, Anita Erskine is an actress. She is an MC, like the MC, the MC as in presidential level MC globally. Um, she's an international broadcaster. She's a business owner. She's an entrepreneur. She is, I mean, like Anita, what haven't I said about you? Like award-winning all around. Mm. And yeah, I just like love everything about you. You know, um, I don't know if I've ever told you this mm. before, but you're like, what I really love about you is that you've literally been used in my life at times when I thought that I did not know what was coming next at times when I undervalued myself, Ooh. you've been the person that God has used in an amazing way to like pick me up and to keep me going. So I'm just so excited wow. to speak to you. I really hope that people will be able to, to get to know the Anita Erskine that I know, you know, cause we all know your <laughs> accolades to a degree. But yeah, welcome to the Africa Whisperer. Thank you so much for joining. Lee, why did you embarrass me with all oh. these beautiful words? <laughs> um, well, I could say the same thing back at you, Lee. Uh, they say iron sharpens iron. Um, and birds of a feather flock together. I mean, all these proverbs and sayings and quotes mean the same thing, that yeah. I'm to you what you are to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And a relationship can only last so long depending on what each party believes um, they get from the relationship. And I think with our relationship, um, I, I don't know. I mean, God has such a sense of humor. It, you're right. I mean, he tends to yeah. throw you into my life when I just need that one one voice that says, Anita, you can do this. And I suppose from what you've said, he does the same thing for you as I come into your life when you need that voice. So it's all one big blessing. Um, and I'm happy to do and be that person for you. And yeah, I mean, this is such an honor that you should choose me to be on your podcast. So like, I mean, it's already been established that I've known you for quite a while. I think I've known you since I joined the, when I used to work with the multi-choice group, which is quite long. That was like 2010, um, thereabouts. There were so many things about you as I was preparing and researching. I'm like, huh. She never told me this. Huh. She never told me that. So we'll start with the fact that you were, you were, your family was living in the Middle East, right? And you were actually born mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. I was like, I literally had no idea because if it was me, everybody would know. I'll say, listen, do you see? <laughs> Jesus is my best friend. Exactly. It's, it's, it's just one of those things that um, it's so much a part of you that yeah. you don't necessarily see it as anything that is out of the ordinary. You know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's, it's who mm. you are. It's what you are. It's where you were born. My parents, my father used to work for the United Nations um, in, in, um, um, in the Middle East. And I don't know, I guess my mother knew that I would be the last of her children. She wanted to do something special. I don't know. I mean, I think she thought I was going to be this, you know, uber ultra spiritual being, um, yeah. a nun or, or, or whatever it is. But I mean, ultimately she did for me what I hold really special to my heart. I mean, she went the lengths of 
having me in Jerusalem because it did it does have that significance for her you know it does have that significance for me so now that you're mentioning it I'm like oh okay yeah it, it is quite special to to be born in Jerusalem to have been baptized where Jesus had his last supper um and and to feel that sort of special connection if you are a spiritual person then to feel that special connection with your spirituality in that sense um and now you had mentioned about your parents um your dad working for the united nations you know um so um mm. is there anything that you remember about that time you know as a child or was it like mm. just when you were a baby and you left uh what what was what do you remember about that time in your life if anything at all mm. Such a beautiful question. I keep having these flashbacks. I mean, my father passed in 2021, you know, at yeah. 84 or 85. So, um, so it's such an interesting thing that you're saying because it's only when he passed away and when I, you know, I was responsible for collating all the pictures and creating the brochure. And that in itself, that exercise kind of took me back to moments where I saw myself as a toddler and a baby. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily have remembered if it was out of the blue. But in that moment, I kind of then had flashes of those moments at birthday parties, in a playground somewhere, or at a gathering where my parents had taken me. Just in that moment, though, Lee, I don't know how mm. to describe it. Yeah. Um, because, listen, I'm in my 40s. I had never mm. thought about this question you're asking me majority mm. of my life until that moment when I'm flipping through all these albums and I'm like asking my mom, oh, who is this? Like, oh, who's you? You are six months. Oh, you, you are four years. Oh. You know, yeah. and it's such a beautiful memory if you can kind of manipulate your brain to take you back. So now that I had the privilege of doing that just before the funeral, I feel that the answer to your question is you have moments of flashbacks and you have moments of, you know, sometimes a little perfume. My mother has this perfume and these perfumes she's been using for decades. And in that yeah. moment, Lee, that perfume suddenly recalled a moment at a birthday party. And let me tell you what's the most interesting. Not long after the funeral, I'm, you know, like we're all on Instagram and TikTok or whatever it is. And I see a message from this person in my inbox, in my Instagram inbox. And she's saying, Oh my God, I remember when we were little and we used to play together. Wow. And that's incredible. I'm you, Lee, exactly. And I'm like, wait, hang on a second. Because you know, these days, you know, the phone one nine, the two one nine, <laughs> it's, it's all in there. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, you know, and she's mentioning, you know, all these things that we used to do as toddlers mm. in nursery school. And she says, do you remember our favorite song? And I said, I you're going to have to help me. And then she sends me a recording of this favorite song and Lee, I now remember clearly who she is, yeah. our friendship. And we were about two, three, four, five years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so I feel like, you know, sorry to go on and on, you know, with this question, no, but no, you know, yeah. I feel that as adults, because we go through what we go through, the only time, and I say this respectfully, a lot of the times, the only time we really remember things sometimes is when those memories are traumatic because they live in mm. our in our bone marrow. They live in mm. our, our, our cells. You know what I mean? Mm. But we often forget good times. And I don't know, maybe a scientist has to explain it to me and how it works. We often forget the good 
you know, mm-hmm. so it was such a privilege, you know, from my father's funeral through to this moment and interacting with my old friend from Israel, how those moments are and were pivotal to how I have become the adult that I am today. So true. I mean, I love everything about what you're saying. And, um, you know, it's true about how, like, the scent of something, the sound of a song one word an image can really almost flashback like you know like you know in movies when you have a sudden montage and a flashback and everything just falls in place and you actually remember i think that that's such a beautiful thing yeah that is such a beautiful thing your dad was a celebrated (laughs) i'm telling you the truth my sisters will be listening to this so let me respect my life i mean your dad was a celebrated general in the military your dad was almost president of ghana i think he ran in 1992 just talk to us about just all of that you yeah. know what you remember about him being in military how that's impacted your life and even the family structure you know having like a, yeah. a general you know as a dad like what was that like you know i i and thanks for this you know the privilege um that you're giving me of you know thinking of good the good times that really form the fabric of my personality and who I am. Uh, well, mm. good, good and bad times because my father was a disciplinarian, man. Nothing gets, by, nothing gets past his eye, his ear, his nose. Nothing gets past. And if the wrong thing gets past, I mean, you are getting it. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's so interesting because uh, um, in this, partic- this year specifically, um, and I'll tell you how your question is connected to my response, you know, j- in just a second. I walked into this year with a prayer, with a prayer to master the discipline that my parents instilled in me. I've been disciplined all mm. my life. Yes, I know. But, you know, Lee, when you are blessed with what God has blessed me with, you know, with a multitude of talents and, of course, a network of people who genuinely are interested and are interested in you as a person and interested in investing in you, um, Mm. you tend to have to practice a level of discipline that is almost inhuman, okay? Now, Mm. that discipline is, as an example, when I go to events, when I MC events, I don't eat because I have a simple policy that you are there to serve the people and not to sit and Mm. mingle with the people. You are the help. Um, wow. you stand at attention majority of the time when I'm, I'm at events, I don't care if it's a two inch heel or if it's a six inch heel, your heel, your choice, but the rule is to stand at attention just in case anything is needed. My stylists don't like the fact that I don't like to explore flamboyant style because I often say, guys, comfort over fashion for me, because I need to be functional. I'm being hired mm. not to be Uh, the red carpet spotlight. I'm being hired to provide a guidance, a smooth and flawless flow of the event. So make Mm. me look good, make me look presentable, but I don't have to be the belle of the night. And how I approach people, how I speak to people, and how I'm even sometimes criticized on the spot and what I do with that criticism in that moment and how I react to it, how much I have to listen. And, mm. and, and Lee, all these elements in my professional life, I mean, my personal life as well, but, in, but because I've known you from the professional, you know, kind of channel, all these elements in my professional life mm. are elements and characteristics that have been instilled by my parents. My father would always say, you don't get dressed and not polish your shoes. So it's true. I mean, of, often women, you know, we're doing our hair, we're doing our makeup. So, you know, we just pick up our shoes and run out. But the first thing to go in my car are my shoes. And the first thing to get polished in the morning 
are my shoes. You know, the last thing mm. to get done is my hair. Not because I don't care how mm. my hair looks. No, 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 not at all. But because, you know, push come to shove, you can wear a scarf. But you can never mm. walk into a space with dirty shoes because then clearly you are mm. unprepared. Mm. And the cool. great moments that are only now great for me as an adult that weren't so great as a child was, you know, things like my father making sure and forcing me to listen to BBC uh, news every 6 a.m. and every 6 p.m. Like, like who does that, Lee? Like, who, who wakes up a child, <laughs> a, a child as young as seven, eight, nine years old to listen to the news? Yeah. Ah, Saturdays, you know, week, weekdays. Like, who does it's that? Like, you know, where's all, the, where's all yeah. the nice music? Again, in reference to who I am today, um, only just, you know, a day or, t- or so ago, you know, I had to do an interview in someone's stead, you know, someone who had been uh, booked for an interview couldn't show up. And, you know, the cameraman says, you know what, we, but we really do need some footage. So can you say a few things? And I jumped right in and I said everything I had to say. And the crew was like, oh, did you know we were going to ask you to do the interview? And I said, no, the other person canceled. How would I have known that I was the one you were going to take? So, so how did you have all these answers? And I said, because I've been trained to think on my feet. I've been trained to think instantly yeah. and, and, and say words and tie words together immediately. And it's by virtue of what my parents made me listen to as a child and even the kinds Mm. of conversations they would allow me to contribute on or they would allow me to listen. Not every every conversation is for a child. Um, You know, and during the funeral, my beautiful sister Catherine said, you know, what she remembers is how my father used to spoil me. Lee, I don't remember my father spoiling me. She's like, oh, you're the only one that daddy would run around the house looking for your socks when you lost Aww. your socks and then he'll get the whole house to go into the garden to look for your socks. And I really Aww. remember that. But I remember be, being scolded for losing my socks. Yeah. But anyway, Lee, um, there is a connection between, you know, what my father instilled in me, who I am right now. And my mother, of course, because ultimately he's mm. a general, but there's a, there's a higher rank in my family. And that's my mother. My mother is the general's general. Um, and, yeah. and bless her for being very, you know, uh, um, gracious about, you know, all the attention that went on, went, you know, on my father at the time. But I have to say what everybody doesn't know is that, yeah, my father was an army in the general, but my mother was an army of the household and anything and everything we have become is because my mother allowed it. And my mother allowed us to sit at the feet of our father to learn things Mm. while she basically took, took on the role of the great overseer, you know, Mm. so it's all beautifully intertwined and connected and, and, and making me who I am and hopefully who I am is a good person enough such that my, you know, my alluding to the fact that they are responsible is an honor or, or it's, it's an honor of my father's legacy and my mother's beautiful uh, guidance that she continues to give to me today. Yeah. You know what I love about this is, you know, when people are always, when people say, if you want to understand who somebody is now, you've got to look back into, you know, look back, look back at where they've come from, look at their context and their story. And literally as you're describing, um, you know, the little things like with your dad, making you listen to BBC and all of that and never stepping out without your shoes being polished, everything. I'm like, this is literally who Anita is. You're mm-hmm. like the, just like a great product and embodiment of your parents, you know? So from my understanding, I think it was in 
92 that your dad had was possibly going to run where well, he ran for president or something mm-hmm. presidency just paint a picture about that particular time where you were in your life as a person you know were you one of those people who was like oh my gosh i'm gonna be the first donor you know <laughs> but it's like you know like just paint a picture like if you remember how that conversation ha- happened and i'll say it because um i know for example with um from from not that i know them personally but from reading michelle obama's book and from a series of interviews she mentioned about how when barack obama decided to be president it was such a big sacrifice for her for the family and to everybody it looked like oh my gosh this is going to be so amazing but for her and for her family it was quite the sacrifice you know um, and also yeah. for the children was quite the sacrifice so for you growing up in that kind of household your dad as you said you know worked with the un he was a, a general mm. in the military your mom was a general's general you know there's eight mm. siblings uh all of these things are happening you're born in jerusalem your dad now wants to run for presidency he's running for presidency from what i understand i think rollings also had wanted to work with him quite closely so for everybody mm. else that sounds really glamorous Take us into the inside of that, like what you can remember about the decision for him to possibly, I mean, to run for presidency and the, the yeah. kind of impact that you would remember that it had, maybe through the lens of your mom and then you as well. Yeah, my, myself. Well, I'll tell you something. Through the lens of a child, it was a very daunting mm. and scary phase in my life. Mm. Extremely. Um, mm. Because, you know, it's one thing to run for president and it's another to be conscious of what it means in terms of your security of what it means in terms of somebody knowing that you are this person's daughter and for them to have mm-hmm. their own hidden agenda, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a positive or, but it is mostly a negative agenda. So you suddenly don't have the freedom that everybody thinks you should have. You know what I mean? In everybody's mind, you should be the kind of person or be in the position where, oh, you've got drivers and you've got people and you've got pilots. So, you know, you're talking about the glamorous side of it all. And I appreciate that. And that would be your perception. At the time, I was 14 years old. And, you know, I've always been a very free spirit. What that means is I can walk out of my parents' gate, walk across the street, buy myself some bananas and, and, and oranges. Um, whatever fruit is in season, walk back and I can be free to do what I want. At the time, mm. I didn't have that freedom because, mm. you know, and, and it was frustrating because, hang on, I'm not the one running for president. Why can't I suddenly go out of the house and buy myself whatever I want to buy myself, peanuts or otherwise? Mm. Um, mm. But suddenly you are gradually being surrounded by people who don't say to you it's a dangerous time and not danger in mm. terms of, ooh, you know, Ghana's a dangerous place, but no, but danger in terms of, this is what your father is doing. Um, and, and, and once there is somebody in that position, automatically, regardless of which country, you just don't know who has an ulterior motive. So I went through that. And when you're 14, you want to go to the school fair, you want to go to the church uh, uh, gathering, you want to go to all these things, but you don't go or you're not allowed to go because it's just not the safest time to be doing what you're doing, mm-hmm. Right. There was a lot of people in the house every day, um, and naturally so. You know, a lot of people in my father's office every day. Um, mm. Your parents are thinking about you, but they are not necessarily, you are not their priority in that moment. They are thinking mm. about you, but they, you're mm. not. You know, so there's little, little things that happen in that moment where it's like, wait, hang on a second, I'm here. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Now, um, mm. you mentioned rightly so, there's eight of us. And being the last of eight, I was the one who was mostly with my parents at home because my parents had me in their older years. So what it mm. meant for me in this moment was I'm the one that saw 
everything that was happening. I'm the one that heard the helicopters going over the house in the middle of the night. Wow. I'm the one that heard, yeah. you know, someone knocking at the gate at 2 a.m. Who could this person be? Um, mm. You know, so, 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 you know, within my heart, I didn't know at the time what it meant to even be a possible first daughter. Like, what is that? You know what I mean? Your father becomes mm. president. And so what? I mean, what does it mean for you? These were not my thoughts mm. you know, at all. My thoughts were like, okay, what's, what really is happening and who are these people? But I bless God for 1992 and the privilege of seeing my father so engrossed in this and so passionate about leading his people and, 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 and continuing to build the nation um, and then losing. Because Lee, what it taught me is people will tell you what they know you want to hear. Yeah. They yeah. won't tell you what they think you should hear to prepare yourself for the worst. Mm. And that's what happened to my father. I mean, he's not here mm. to tell me exactly what it is that went through his mind. And I wish I had asked him at a point. I didn't. But from mm. what I observed, it's a lot of people saying to you, you're going to do it. You're going to be it. Ghana loves you. The Ghanaians love you. Oh, my God. You are winning in this place. Oh, my God. You're going to be this person. And then at election time, being nothing, obviously, because you didn't win. Not only did you yeah. not win, you didn't even place number number three. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, hopefully my records are right. Um, you didn't even get votes in certain places. So it goes to mm. show that, Lee, we all have to guard and guide ourselves by what the external voice tells us who we are. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and not so much rely on a praise from, from people, you know, whose job really, and I say this with all the humility and respect for anyone who came in support of my father, people whose job is to make you feel consistently every day that mm-hmm. you're going to win. And that was their job. I don't negate it. I was too young to even understand. But today I say to myself, okay, when I'm embarking on someone, and you know, sometimes we have these little intuitions and things like that. Somebody says, oh, and he said, you know what? This place, this person, this thing, this whatever it is, think twice about it. But sometimes you're surrounded by yeah. somebody who says, oh, you, oh, no, you need to listen. Oh, you oh, you got that. But you've got to tell yourself and ask yourself, this person is saying because they believe I can do this. I hold no fault with that. But can I do mm. it? Is this my time to do it? And as a child mm. of 14, I didn't know this. But as an, as an adult in my 40s now, I now mm. understand the value of what I was seeing around me at the time when my father was trying to be president of the Republic of Ghana. And, yeah. and I would say from the perspective of a 14-year-old that there was no time, there was no moment in that that was exciting. There was nothing exciting about any part of it. But I would say mm. as a 44-year-old today that what I should have or what I could have learned, which I have learned now, is that the people around you are often the ones to hype you, but they are definitely not the yeah. ones to talk you into not doing certain things because you are not the right person or you are not in the right place at the, at the ideal time. So I believe my father may have been the right person for the job. I mean, I say that he was not the right person in that time. Mm. And I still hold on to all his successes before that. And I just use this mm. as he being a sacrificial lamb for the rest mm. of us who want to learn about what not to do 
um, in certain moments in, of our lives. And I say this respectfully. You know, I love him to bits. Yeah. I say this respectfully. But I think that his inability to do what he really dreamt of doing or wanted to be is now mm. our ability or my ability to really go for what I genuinely believe I can win in and I can do. I literally want to say thanks so much for your TED talk. Um, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, thanks for coming to Anita Erskine's TED talk, you know, because I don't even know how to transition out of everything you've said, but this is literally yeah, well. who you are. Like, it's like, mm. it's so um, just your life. You literally are always dropping all of these gems and nuggets. So yeah, thank, thank you very you. much for being so open and sharing that um, mm. from the perspective of a 14 year old, you know, um, because mm. again, and I think it's also because of the world that we live in today where everything is so like about power. It's so about aesthetics. It's so about all, mm. all these things that people don't think about the human that's behind the situation. You know, they don't think about the people. It's more like what, what everybody else thinks about you, um, you know, or what everybody else assumes is happening in your life or what everybody else says versus how you're how you are really doing on the inside you know and and i think that that's such True. an important thing especially when you consider people trying to build their lives and you know it's okay sometimes to be having like it's okay sometimes when things don't go your way you just have to find a way of like rebuilding yourself and just picking yourself up and keeping on going you know after you've had Absolutely. like your 30 minutes of tears then Absolutely. after 30 minutes of tears Spot that's on. all you get <laughs> That's all you, you get. You just have to keep on. going. Now, Anita, so, so we've, we've touched on you, you know, just the Middle East, um, part of your, of, of being, you know, <laughs> being born in, in Israel and, and all of that, um, and your dad and your, your family. Um, and then, so you obviously spend a bulk of your time, like in Ghana. You're like, you're a Ghanaian. How do I say, is it Ghanaian or Ghanaian? I know I always get Ghanaian. like told that I say it wrong. Ghanaian. Don't forget, your, I'm sorry. Your passport, you're... your passport is being processed, Lee. So say this correctly. Otherwise, you're failing that exam. <laughs> So you, you spent a lot of time in Ghana and from what I understand, you went to Christ the King. So you're a Catholic school, like a convent school. I also went to a convent school. So, and then you decided to go and study um, in Canada, right? Um, and so how did this opportunity come out, come about? And what was that like for you being in Canada, especially because you were so rooted in what was going on in Ghana? Well, you know, I have to say, um, with all due respect, um, to what it feels or my bio may look like, you know, it's always when you read someone's bio, it looks like, oh my God, look how they planned their life. Look how beautifully and flawlessly they move from one step to another, stage to stage. Um, at the time yeah. when I went to Trent University in Canada, pre prior to that, I had I had flunked my A levels so badly um, that the ah uh, my sister, we don't even have enough time to talk about how I flunked my A levels. Um, and I remember, I, I, you know, it's almost like I knew I was gonna flunk. It, it, it's like two years before that. You know, I'd done my O levels. I had you know finished with with wonderful grades. I was doing very well. But I had, even from a child, I had major learning disabilities. And, and, and those mm. learning disabilities are not, you know, and I say this respectfully, they are not, you know, the kind of learning disabilities that are, that are characterized or that are defined, you know what I mean? For which, you know, there, there is, you know, some perhaps medical intervention, whatever it is. The, the disability that I was going through was not being able to break down traditional forms of learning not allowing them or not able to, you know, get what was being taught seep easily into my mind. I had to be taught literally like how you build a house, brick by brick, sand uh, speck by sand speck. I wasn't the kind of student that could read stuff on the board or read it in the book and immediately absorb it. 
Uh, but that's a conversation for another day. So what has happened is after my A-levels that I flunked, I couldn't get into university. I really wanted to pursue university outside of Ghana, couldn't get into any university from the UK to the US to Canada, maybe all, all together. I mean, I keep changing these numbers, but all together, maybe anywhere from about seven or about 10 university has, has said, wow. you know, um, no, no, mm. you know. Uh, and it's always like, no, take life seriously and then we'll consider you. Um, but for one university, Trent University, that accepted me based on my social work and involvement. Wow. So every university at the time was looking at my grades. Mm. Trent was looking at how I, how involved I, I was in community building. And in high school, it was music. It was theater. Mm. It was, you know, uh, uh, social impact work. It was all these things that were, I say this again with humility, character building, going out into mm. the communities, doing radio shows, you know, uh, mm. painting schools, teaching children with, with learning disabilities. I mean, and so Trent University accepted me based on my proven track record in sports, in music, and even mm. in the small, small radio shows and TV shows I had done as a youngster. And that's how Canada happened. Um, wow. But then the blessing here, and I don't say every child should fail their exams. No, if you're listening to me, um, please, pass if your you're exams. a child or if you're a young person, <laughs> please pass your exams. Do not yeah. be like Anita. If you're a parent, please help your child pass an exam. Please don't say, oh, because Anita Erskine made it, you can fail exams. Nope, that's not what I'm saying. Disclaimer here, disclaimer, guys. But... Um, those two years that I had to sit back in Accra when all my, mm. my, 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 my colleague students had gone to university is when I started to do radio and television professionally, mm. you know? And, and wow. so at the time Canada came into play. So I'm a Ghana girl born, well, born in Jerusalem, but by Ghanaian parents grew up in Ghana, lived in Ghana, formed and molded in Ghana before I went to Canada. Mm. You know, so it's funny. I ha I'm happy you're asking that because a lot of people are like, oh, you must have learned that in Canada. Oh, you must have become this person in Canada. No, 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 no. I learned these things in It was in what Ghana. you learned in Ghana. Canada, that yes, that my dear. I learned what yeah. I do now. I learned it in Ghana. Canada exposed it. me to the beauty of multiculturalism, allowing mm. me, therefore, to understand how to speak to people, respect mm. cultures, and, and then allowed me to mold my languaging so that in any room, I could respect the room, but I could also stand individual. So that's what mm. Canada did. So I, I always say, you know, let's not get it twisted here. Um, Ghana taught me everything I knew. Canada took me to the next level, elevated my understanding of what and mm. who I wanted to be in, you know, in a global perspective. You know, so I don't even know if that answers the question you asked me, but but that's how that happens. Yeah, oh, that more than answers the ah, question, and you. I really love the fact, um, you know, about how you speak about how you, you know, you being a Ghana girl and your Ghana roots and the things you learned in Ghana are the things that have really 
made you and the other uh, what make you who you are you know um because we had we interviewed dr mm-hmm. wendy okolo and she was speaking now about how she has you know has her children and what she was learning in school um is much more advanced to what compared to what her children are learning being based in the u.s you know and sometimes oh, we look down yes. on what's going on in africa mm-hmm. but we don't realize that there's so many things mm-hmm. happening in the continent that where we are actually doing so well whether mm-hmm. it's like what we're learning what the children are learning at school whether it's just the the you know, the experiences that you're having and everything that you've learned in school that has really prepared us for the world. But somehow I feel that as Africans for a very long time, obviously it's changed now. We've really thought that in order to be able to make it like internationally, we need, you know, or to be able to be recognized globally, we need to have had like these foundations in the West. And that is absolutely not the truth. So that's why I love um, what you were saying. It's so powerful. It really yeah. is true to what Dr. Wendy Okolo yeah. said too. But I, 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 I'm happy. I'm happy that you're mentioning what Dr. Wendy Okolo has also said, you know, and, and honestly, I refuse for us to negate what the motherland does for us. I refuse to negate it. Mm. At the same time, mm. I also acknowledge that background, family background, family dynamic also plays mm. a role in who we become when we're the continent. So, of course, because, you know, I'm one person, you're one person, we cannot use our learnings and our experiences as Bible or as scripture. Yeah, um, uh, I do know true. people, I do have clients, I do have friends, I do have affiliates for whom Africa didn't necessarily mold the way they mm. would have liked to be molded and only receive that kind of molding when they set foot in the Caribbean or when they set mm. foot in America or when they set foot in the UK. Mm. So I feel that mm. what doesn't exist in isolation is the fact that background is also crucial. And I bless yeah. you for this part of the conversation because I had a, I, I had a, a, a wonderful um, interaction with a young man whose mother sells tomatoes um, he, mm. um, in Ghana at the Makola markets and who today is, is flying sky high in an Ivy League school and talked about mm. how he went to a public school in Ghana where he learned, you know, harsh discipline. You know, you get to school on time, you do your homework, etc. Um, Ghana didn't necessarily do for him what he would have loved Ghana to do because he just felt that there were certain things he could learn more of that he didn't have access mm. to because of his family background until he got into an Ivy mm. League school and suddenly had access to these things. But he will come back to Ghana to help rebuild mm. and help connect the dots and create opportunities for young people that. who will not go outside to take advantage of. So I feel that um, I have had the privilege of parents who lived a global life enough to prepare for me to live globally. Not everybody gets that opportunity mm. and I respect it wholly. That's and not fair. everybody feels mm. that Ghana or Nigeria or South Africa or Egypt prepares them the way they need to be prepared. And sometimes their eyes open. And even I mean, me, if I can even talk to my own experience, you know, to a large mm. extent, I fell in love with Africa through the eyes of a quote unquote Canadian. It's only when I got to Canada that I started to experience Mm. the plethora of African cultures because I was in a university that literally had over 30 international students, uh, over over, over, over hundreds of international students from over 30 countries on the continent of Africa. It's where I learned that, oh, Lesotho is in Southern Africa and it's not part of South Africa. You know, oh, Morocco is in Africa. You know, so all these kinds of things. So I believe that ultimately, ultimately, no matter your background, living around the world is a definite bonus. But if you are like me and you've had, you know, quote unquote, a good upbringing, quote unquote, you've had the blessing of access, you know, that perhaps the average person doesn't, you know, have, please don't make it sound as mm. if 
you know, because you were born in Africa, you struggled. You know, and I say this and I sound cautious to a lot of people. So, I mean, put into perspective, Lee, that, and, and I can only speak from my perspective for a minute. I learned the power of Africa, the beauty of Africa, our plethora of cultures. You know, I learned to respect our diversity through the lens of a quote-unquote Canadian. Mm -hmm. It's only when I landed in Canada, when I got to university, where, you know, there were hundreds of international students from different parts of the continent, Mm -hmm. that I realized, oh my goodness, my continent is so diverse. It's so beautiful. It's so rich. And, 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 you know, I, I, I had a roommate from Lesotho. Only at that point did Lee, I even understand that Lesotho is part or is in Southern Africa yeah. and not part of South Africa. You know what I mean? Mm. So, so listen, you ask a very important question. And I feel like sometimes because of the narrative and because, you know, people like to make things feel as if, you know, life was so bad in Africa before I left depending on who you are, by the way, Mm. that it only enriches the narrative. I think that, listen, if you are like me to have been blessed, to have gone to good schools, to have had access to the internet when the perhaps average Ghanaian didn't have access to internet, Mm. you don't have to remove that from your story. You know what I mean? There are people who haven't had the access I had at my age today who are doing so well. Because when they left Africa, they they suddenly started to have access to different things and it is molded them it is and i respect and i love that story mm-hmm. but you have to you know you have to always come back to the authenticity of who you are mm-hmm. i grew up in ghana and i speak the way i do i have the mannerisms i do i have the thought process i do because i grew up with parents and in a home and in a community that nurtured all of that mm-hmm. not everyone had that kind of access mm-hmm. you know so so it's almost like you know i'm not trying to you know you know hoard your time or hog your time and, and, and say this. But when I talk about owning the narrative, Lee, we have to be careful that the narrative doesn't sound for everyone like the same, you know, yeah. a, a, a grass, a grass mm. to riches story. Mm. No, if mm. you had good education in Africa, say mm. it. Yeah. If you went to good schools when you were on the continent, say it. Mm. Of course, likewise, if you grew up in a part of the continent that was a, a, a marginalized, and your ability to access the, you know, uh, the international world is what took you out of it. We celebrate you for it, mm. you know. So, so it's important that we not misappropriate and warp the conception of what Africa can do or what Africa did to some of us and what Africa didn't do for some people. Mm. The stories are diverse, yeah. you know. So thanks for this question. I'm always very... I, I, I always need to make really clear, I love Canada, I love Ghana, I love Europe, I love wherever I'm able to go and work and live and, mm. and flourish and do all of that. But not at the cost of making it seem as if life was bad for me in Africa before I left. Yeah. You know, Ooh. I mean, I know that I've, I've, I've thrown the, the question off of, of, no, of the rails. No, no. I, re- I, I really love it. Sometimes we need to clarify that. Yeah, no, definitely. And, I, and I'm so glad that you did clarify it, you know, because I actually found myself off in a trap of thinking about like oh you know like it, it like being in Africa like I 
you made me almost check my privilege if I can, if I can use that term, you know, mm. um, because I, for mm. me being in Africa, um, you know, being Ugandan, growing up in South Africa and living in South Africa and now being in Ghana, like I also have to check my privilege and realize because of the family that I came from, the community, the friends, all the experiences and the access that I had, my experience of what it's like to live in Africa, to travel around, to work, the friends I have in Nigeria, the people, you know, all of this, my experience is so different yeah. to somebody like what you were saying about the gentleman whose mom was working at Macaulay market yes. you know and all of that yes. and so sometimes we also need to check it especially because we're living in a world now where everybody is looking at like all things africa and we need to remember that yes everything is it, it is like there's opportunity there's possibility it is fantastic but like exactly what you're saying we need to remember that everybody does not have the same narrative it's balanced and it makes me think about this you know having being able to tell like multi-layered stories mm. about who we are as a people mm. and our experiences and being okay with yeah. that you know so you really, yeah. I mean, I was only quiet because I'm like, oh, wow, she really made me check my privilege because sometimes I forget, yeah. you know, like sometimes I forget. So, and I think that that's really and we powerful. All do. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And yeah. we all do Um, in a world where, and I'm, I love your podcast. I love how it encourages truth and transparency and authenticity. I like how you check us, your guests. So that we're not misrepresenting the truth. Yeah, because you know what? Sometimes it gets into our head to tell the yeah. story in a way that, you know, attracts empathy and sympathy and makes people think, oh my God, so you are great. You are so great because you came from nothing. No, please. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? My parents did well to put me in the best school. But in that same narrative, and I respect it 100%, not everybody got access to the kind of education that I got access to. Not mm. everybody got access to the kinds of internships that I got access to. Mm. Not everybody has my last name, yeah. which may close a door or even open a door in the same sentence. Mm. But the beauty of us all is that on an individual level, you take what you've been given. And from that standpoint, you try to multiply it and mm. create a story that inspires the next person, whether or not. They share the same background. That's where we are now. Woo. Doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. Doesn't matter your last name. Doesn't matter. What will you do? What mm. do you do with what you have? Mm. So that even if you went to a private school, someone who is in a not so privileged position can still hear elements and aspects of mm. your story and think to themselves that they can be what they truly want to be. I want to just go into just um the work that you've done, you know, obviously like this conversation is never going to be enough to encapsulate all the work that you've done. Honestly, I, I said it as a joke at the beginning, but literally people, if people don't know who you are, they literally need to Google all the work that you've done because it's extraordinary. Your catalog of work, your body of work, the, the, the people that have called on you personally to be able to mm. MC events, the kind of stages that you've graced, mm. just the work that you've done, even with, with regards to women, SDG goals, the work you've done with the UN, everything. Anita, it is... It is it's such a life filled with purpose. It's just incredible. So mm. I know that we're never going to get into it because people might be like, you don't ask her this, you don't ask her that. We're like, yeah, we're trying to get to the heart of who she is. So, you know, but, but, but now you, I wanted to always ask this, right? Because I know you, um, from, yeah. I think, cause I joined M Mnet in 2011. Um, yeah, I joined, yeah. no, 2010. Sorry. I joined, um, the multi-choice group in 2010 at Channel O. 
and you had mm. been at um, 53 Extra, you know, um, Studio 53, yeah. sorry. Um, Studio 53. You were at Studio 53, yeah. right? Um, and before that, you were on a show in Ghana called The Mentor. So you were like the it girl. Mm. You were busy running these streets, mm. like cute oh, as anything. 2007, yeah, 2008, honestly, 2009. Yes, man. Running it yeah, all over. Yeah. You've worked across yeah. like all the different yeah. media platforms, like we've mentioned already. Yeah. Um, uh, with multi-choice, uh, you also were the head of programming mm. at Viasat, and then you were on Viasat mm. hosting a show, um, mm. GH1, TV3. I'm trying to see if I can mm. remember everything because it's incredible all the work that you've done. Girl, Metro, all of it. Mm-hmm. All of it. Mm-hmm. So now I, I'm trying to find a way of phrasing this question, right? It's like, so mm. when you had started, like, especially, you know, that whole thing about being quote unquote, I don't want to say the it goal because it sounds a little bit derogatory, but that, that thing of being the person that everybody's calling on you, right. you know, everybody's calling mm. on you for your work, right? You're, you're really good at what you do. Amazingly cute, to mm. put it mildly, you know, you were just, you were in everybody's faces, right? And then you go through a period where everything seems to change, right? Because I know that I think when yeah. Biola Labi yeah, came into um, as the head of Mnet Africa, so then there was a change in what the, the strategy was for um, 53 for Studio 53, which became 53 Extra. So all of those things change. You are in front of camera. You now, dis- you know, you you then you 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 know you you you're married and you decide to focus on being a mother. Talk to us about transitions mm. in your life, you know, that people maybe had not seen. Like the transition from being yeah. on um, Studio 53 and being all over Africa and everybody knowing you into going into a quiet period. So if you can talk to us about some things that you remember in those moments and, you know, how, what, what you know, just like share those nuggets. Yeah, because I think that that's yeah, so powerful. For sure. Mm. I think the one thing that I've learned, and I thank God all those things happened to me when they did. Mm. I thank God for them because they've taught me that evolution is a powerful tool, Mm. a powerful tool that we're not taught to see as powerful, but we're taught to run away from because it means the Mm. end of an era. And Mm. the problem with evolution is because a lot of people don't say to us that, listen, there is evolution, whether you like it or not, if the evolution might come through the work of an individual you know, um, an individual comes and decides, you know, these formats don't work for me anymore. Change them. Evolution is happening. And that individual instilled that because, yes, it's true. The landscape, television landscape was changing. Mm. And perhaps what she had come to meet was an outdated form of what would otherwise entice and interest and, 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 and excite viewers. And we saw it, Lee. Let us not mm. lie. At the time, I didn't understand it. I was like, ooh, so abruptly. Yes, it was totally. It didn't have to be that abrupt. But I look back now and I think to myself, well, you know something? No one is to be blamed if you're not ready for evolution. That is the reality. This is the mature me Mm. speaking to the 20-something-year-old me who didn't understand why you should change something that works so well. Evolution doesn't see what is Mm. working well. Evolution only comes through because life is happening. Mm. And so at the time, you know, that abrupt end of Studio 53 also kissed the beginning of my family life, which is Mm. my having my daughter, Mali, my Mm. son, Nessa, the year after getting married. It was, you know, the kind of transition that was quite destabilizing, not because it wasn't great to who I am, but because I didn't plan for it the way Mm. in the way it rolled out. So I also want to say this because a lot of people, a lot of women assume that, oh, when you become a married woman, when you have children, that's the end of it. Listen, I understand there's a lot of injustice and inequalities and I more than anybody or I along with other people. I mean, we, we, we are trying to fix it. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, I was going to say I more than anybody has experienced it, but then I respect other people's experiences, which is probably mine is nothing compared to theirs. At that time, the transition was as a train wreck or as much as a train wreck as you can imagine because I hadn't connected the dots for the next phase of my career. Mm. I hadn't, Lee. Um, and that's what happens when your head is in the clouds and when you're having fun, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and more than everything, Lee, the reason I talk to girls and mentor girls today is because I didn't have a predecessor who would yeah. say to me, yo, girl, I can see you're flying high. Can we have a coffee so we can talk about the next stage? Or the next phase. Mm. So I had to discover the next stage and the next phase on my own. And it was the most difficult phase in my life. Would I go back and do it all over again? Yes, I would. Because it molded and it texturized my language as you hear it today. It's what really made me say, wow, women really are (laughs) um, struggling, to put it lightly or to put it, you know, simply. So when Mm. my career with Studio 53 came to that abrupt end, I hadn't thought of what I wanted to do next. But I have to say, you know, from Viasat, Viasat was a wonderful saving grace because I had learned quite a lot about producing. I was lucky to have skills that I had been taught by, you know, Lisa, who was my executive producer on Studio 53. So that's how I was able to transition to uh, programming and Viasat. And then, you know, one thing led to another and I was able to start producing my own shows. Through which, in interacting with people and in going from one place to the other, I was able to build my business from there. From there, but Lee, the question, the answer. Sorry about the long answer, but the answer no. to your question was: tr- the transition was difficult because I didn't plan as yeah. I plan now, and as I'm so intelligent now with knowing when a phase has come to an end and knowing to gradually, you know, uh, uh, move into the next phase flawlessly. I didn't know that then. So the transitions were horribly difficult and, you know, a very huge burden on my emotions as well. But my children, you know, when you watch the end of, to the end of, of, of my show, Shiro's, it says inspired by Nessa and Mali Amaizo because yeah. my children, oh my God, Lee, those kids saved me. Mm. There was a simple policy. I wanted to be my children's hero. So mm. even in the moment when I realized I was dropping the ball on a lot of things because I was not planning strategically, I thought, what would I do? What can I do to make my children say, oh, my mother is whom I look up to. And that's how I picked up the pieces and quickly migrated into the person I am today. Um, and, you know, Anita, as we're even speaking, you know, I just realized that you basically have lived your life and you've grown up in the public eye even before you, you know, got into media in the you know, in the technical sense, because of your family um, and also you're very active at school and church, you were always in the public eye, you know? Um, yeah. So it seems as though like it was something that was so purpose for you, like you were really being prepared and groomed the whole time. But mm. I want to speak about just, um, you know, as a, like for me personally, if I'm very honest, I have a lot of like insecurities, um, you know, which is part of the reason why I prefer doing interviews in, on, I prefer radio <laughs> than what I do to, to like <laughs> TV. It's part of the reason why I prefer audio interviews. <laughs> if I'm very honest, you know, um, I prefer it a lot more because, um, you know, being a woman and also for me growing up, I had so many people always telling me what was wrong with the way that I looked. It was just always such a thing, you know, 
Um, and I just, so my confidence, it goes, it goes up and down, up and down. And I mm. always have to kind of remind myself, but I can't even imagine because I only had a fraction of that, you know, being in front of everybody, but I, I can't imagine what, what was it like for you basically doing your life with everybody's eyes on you, you know, like what was that like for you? Even like your career being on TV and people yeah. seeing you all the time, like as a woman, cause yeah. Mm. How was that experience for you? What, what lessons did you learn from that? Well, I learned to be less critical of myself because mm -hmm. if I listened to what everybody had to say to me mm. about me that was painful mm. or critical, mm. I would lose my mind. Mm. I learned to to listen but not hear all the time, you mm. know, or hear but not listen all the time, whichever one mm. means, you know, whatever it is. I also learned to understand that everyone has their opinion of you. And once, especially through television and radio, you are in their space. They do feel that they can lay claim to what they think you should be. So I've had that all my life. You know, mm. lose weight. Hey, why have you lose so much? Why have you lost so much weight? Gain weight. Oh, I remember you when you were so skinny. Mm. Interview goes, oh, why did you ask her that question? TV, oh, why did you wear that dress? Mm. But I have to say that I also elude a lot of the patience and tolerance of listening to people or, you know, choosing to select what I wanted to actually seep into my consciousness from my parents, you know what I mean? Mm. In that you're not going to be able to please everybody at the same time. It's fact. Mm. Mm. You're going to have to learn early enough how to choose and pick what affects you and then how to take time to fix that which affects you. So mm. what affects you may not necessarily be a criticism. It might even be something positive that you mm. want to grow from there. I started television when I was 18 or was I 17? Professional television, maybe in 2006 when I was like 21 or so. 20, no, 25, 26, 27, whatever. So, so basically a kid when have, you started TV. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, and mm. at nine is when I started playing around TV, in TV studios and I would come on television, you know, uh, intermittently. So yes, my life has always been in front of a kind of camera or in front of a kind of, 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 of microphone. But Lee, at the same time, let me tell you this. You choose your path, okay? Mm. Now, when you choose that path, you don't blame people and their perceptions on you, or you don't blame the, you know, the satisfaction, or you don't point fingers, because you've chosen that path, Lee. You've chosen yeah. the path. You could also live a very, very, very private life. You can live a very private life, very quiet life, and no one's going to ask you any questions. But the moment you decide that, listen, public life, so to speak, is my calling, it comes mm. with all of this. So you were talking at the beginning, oh, Anita is a down-to-earth person or whatever it is. Yes, because Lee, when I move from room to room, whatever it is, I'm talking to human beings. And not every human being has maybe a fraction of the confidence I have. So in order to mm. invite them, invite their trust, invite their ability to have a conversation with me. I need to meet them at a certain level. And sometimes that level isn't always high. There's the president level or madam president level or king and queen level. Sometimes it's the waiter who heard your last TV show, who listened mm. to your last radio interview, is sitting in a trotro and felt, oh, I love this auntie. Who is serving you a coffee? And they say, auntie, I love the topic you had last week on your show. Lee, mm. you've got to learn to talk to all these people. Oh, and in the same yeah. time, that waiter or waitress who's serving you the coffee, who 
in your mind or in your, uh, you know, in your, in your perception of who you want to deal with may not necessarily see the boxes you're hoping to take because you've decided you only want to speak to a certain kind of person. But that person is your friend. And that mm. person ultimately deserves to share their view of what you are or what they think you are because it. they spent their hard-earned money and their time mm. listening to you on, on, on TV or radio. And mm. it's not to that person you say, well, you can't tell me not what to wear. No. Mm. Your time I love that. pays for I love your that. relevance. So yeah. you've got to learn the art of being open to what you believe you can handle mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and what you believe has no place and space in your life. Pick the two, select, and then move right along. So my life in front of the camera, in front of the audience, has been the kind of life so far that I've learned that when somebody says, ooh, I'm your biggest fan, it comes with a responsibility. It comes with accountability. Mm. And not in that moment when you say, oh, because you don't drive a Mercedes, you can't tell me what to do. Uh-uh. If you're earning only 100 CDs a month or only $10 a month, and they decided to spend $1 on data to watch your TV show, oh, my sister, they're entitled to share their opinion. Now, it's up to it. you to decide what mm. to do with that opinion. That's my life. I love that. Sure. Anita, I could literally, like, I don't know. I Every time I think I'm going to ask you this, you kind of, like, switch everything. But I was kind of prepared emotionally. No, it's a good thing. You know what? It's a good thing. Like, I was really, I was actually very, I came into this conversation with such an open heart and an open spirit mm. and open mind. You yeah. know, I really, you know, whenever I speak to people, I don't want to just, I don't want to really talk about, like, all of their amazing accolades. Because, again, you can research that. You can find it everywhere. What I do always want to be able to be is to get people to understand the minds and the stories behind the story. And, like, you articulate, you articulate and you've given so many gems in so many ways like literally I think there's like four TED talks in this but you know I did want to touch on something I mean on something amazing that that you that you that you've done you know I think you put uh four girls through school if I'm not mistaken yeah. like personally yeah. out of your pocket yeah. because you do have a, a a business that you run you've got boss um, mm. um boss lady productions um you know and mm -hmm. you the money that comes from there you literally put them through school and not just any school yeah. but like school which is a sacrifice for for your children it's a sacrifice you know mm. even like your husband being very supportive just you know I guess the question is why? And I, and I say it in this way. People are always saying that, oh, this person put a hundred people through school. That person put a hundred people through school. And mm. which is a great thing. And, you know, many times it's like they've raised the money with a partner, with a foundation. Mm. I want to mm. understand for you why, you know, it was so important for you, like money that comes to you directly, that comes into your family, into your home, that you take that out of your pocket in these in this economic time and you pay for and make sure that these girls go through school i you know like i just want to get to the essence yeah. of that how i grew up is all god's amazing blessing we've talked about that privilege right and where mm. that privilege is as much as my parents were strict and they didn't overgive you know my father gave me exactly what he intended to give which is you get a great education what you do with the what you do with that that's your problem he didn't overgive he didn't give each mm. of his children a car he didn't give each of his children a house whatever it is and he kept saying it to the day he died listen i will give you education why do i mm. want to get to the fi finish line with all the flowers and accolades you think i want to get there by myself no i'm one of the most proud people of my continent of my country 
And it's not about, oh, being the first black person to do this, being the first Ghanaian to do this. You know, all of those things are, are, are credible. They are, they are incredible. They are important. I, I love all those things. But what is the point of those things if you haven't helped somebody else mm. to have a fraction of what mm. God gave you as a child and what God is giving you as an adult? I don't want mm. to get to that finish line by myself. It would be lovely to look from left to right to see that others, even if not through my hard work, others have been able to access some of or, or all of what I've accessed. And mm. I love funding. Grant funding around the world is important. I like it when you tap into something, a seed money somebody's giving you. I haven't gone for funding simply because I wanted to do with what God had given me as opposed mm-hmm. to what God had given someone to give to me. I don't mm-hmm. know if that, what that makes, you know, if that makes sense. No, it makes so for sense. me, yeah. my support of these girls is a little bit more spiritual than it is, you know, uh, I guess strategic or tactical for their access to mm-hmm. education. Mine is a, a little like, you know, you've given me so much God, like, like on the daily opportunities around the world, you know, uh, um, 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 you know, a supportive family, I have to be able to help the people who don't get this. And I mm. believe, Lee, in my heart, it is why God gives it to me. You mentioned, oh, Anita's so multi-talented. You look at her bio, she's so... Da, 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 da. All these things aren't just for me as Anita. No, they are mm. given to me as, you know, as a shepherd. They're not given mm. to me for me, Lee. And I believe it. I believe that God hasn't inundated my life with all these opportunities for me as as Anita Erskine alone. But it's like, I'm giving you all of this because I know that when you get it, you will share it. So you Mm -hmm. don't, for one minute, think to yourself that this is all mine. Look at me now. I'm standing on the world stage. No, it's so that when you have it, you will take care of the person who doesn't have it. Praying that when you enable them to also have their version of what they have, they will also do same for others it's a multiplier effect and that's why i do it from my pocket from my heart to the people that i believe collectively and if you're talking about the concept of africa collectively we will change africa but individually if we decide that i'm keeping every dollar i make to myself and my children how are you going to change that africa it's not it doesn't work that way Mm. so that is my why i love that honestly i'm literally sitting here like amen preach <laughs> honestly you know um because it, it, it i mean and yeah, yeah honestly and you are like you know the thing about you is that you really are such a spiritual person and that's one of the things that i love the most about you and you're so aware of um the purpose and the calling that god has in your life you're so aware even literally even when you're around like heads of states or whatever the you know yeah. whatever the case may be you literally remain consistent in who you are and i feel yeah. that what you're saying is so true. God gives us more when we do with what he's given us, what he's expected us to do. I don't know if I've said that correctly. So yeah, I think that it, you perfect. know, it really is so, so powerful, you know, um, you know, Anita, just, uh, you know, a few, a few other things I just wanted to touch on before we, we closed up um, the conversation. One of the things I did want to kind of switch gears uh, and kind of ask is like, what, what your thoughts are on where we are, um, you know, as Africans and because you've been on stages with global leaders, global CEOs, presidents, all of that, what do you think, you know, from the conversations that you've been able to either moderate or to MC or the rooms that you've entered that other people don't enter. 
what is the one thing that you think that we are not understanding um, as, as Africans, you know, that yeah. uh, in terms of, of who we are as a people, what is that one thing that you feel that we, that we're not understanding? Lee, I don't know if we're not understanding, but because I had the privilege of asking this question, I'm just going to underline it. You know, there's a perception of Africa. Mm-hmm. That perception can only be changed mm-hmm. when Africa, you know, Africans, you know, are living around the world, diasporans, Africans, you know, uh, people of African descent. That can only change when we take a hold of that change ourselves. That's not Mm. to say that we do it by ourselves. No, partnerships and collaborations are important with people who have shared visions, shared values, shared experiences. But we have to Mm. hold on to what is inherently part of our culture that makes us unique, what is inherently a representation of who we are, whether it's from our Mm. music, through our film, to theater, to our governance, to social impact, anything. That uniqueness, is what Mm. brings us to that kind of storytelling of who the African is that will help Mm. enable the world and think what they believed or what they assumed Africa was and accept Mm. what Africa truly is. But that cannot Mm. happen if we don't lay claim to how the story is told. So I'm connecting this to what I mentioned about where you grew up in Africa and the kind of story you tell when you believe you're on a certain stage. Do not make Africa seem like Africa has nothing if you have been able to participate or if you have benefited Mm. from the somethings of Africa. Because then Mm. it gives people the idea and the warped perception that you only became who you are because you had the privilege of leaving Africa. Mm. What Africans themselves have to understand is we are a powerful people. It is true. We are, history is dotted by injustices. I have the privilege of hosting the Accra Reparations uh, Conference. And what people shared about their great-grandfathers being, you know, taken on the ship, it's gut-wrenching, it's heartbreaking. But today they're here to connect the dots and fix what should be in the future. So Africa has to understand Mm -hmm. that we have so much to give. I am blessed to be in rooms, yes, where there's leaders and where there's conversations. And in that room, we're talking about partnerships. We're talking about collaborations. We're talking about building back better. And we're talking about being able mm. to give the youth the kind of voice that perhaps even us as youth, as a collective as youth then, we didn't have. But we have to give back to the youth of tomorrow. And we've got to stop looking at the youth from the perspective of what we were when we were young. Their world is different. So in their world, we have so to different. teach them the power of innovation. In their world, we have to teach them the power of the voice. What is the voice? What does it do? Where is it used? What does it say? The uniqueness of being African is not necessarily through African prints. People think, oh, once you wear African prints, you're representing Africa. Yes, it is true. <laughs> but, yeah. but it is not the essence of you as an African. The words that come out of your mouth, education. Understand the history that helps you to mold the future. So if you don't understand what our forefathers and our forebears fought for, how do you go and fight? What are you fighting for? So even understanding the basics, what is it that they wanted? And how do I merge that with what I want? And how do I enforce that in the world that I am sitting in now? And how do I even shape that for my children in the world that they are going to inherit? So I think that the one thing that Africa needs to get right is how African stories are told to 
you're told. Mm. And not necessarily who's telling the story because we all have, you know, the, 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 the right to tell the story, but the authenticity of the story that makes people see that, okay, like everywhere else in the world, we have our diverse problems. You're parts of the United States and Canada that people sit on the streets and beg for money on the subway. Yeah, yeah. Same happens mm. here in Ghana. Same happens here in mm. Nigeria. Same happens in South Africa. Same happens in Egypt. You know what I mean? But it is true. Ghana media won't tell a story about a poor man sitting on a subway begging for alms. Yeah, yeah. Do you see what I mean? Maybe yeah. Canadian media yeah. or US media or whatever it is will tell that story. I don't know. And quite frankly, at this point in my life, I think that mm. people will tell whatever kind of story they want to tell because it suits their purpose. What story are mm. we telling so that it suits our purpose? That question yeah. is the answers we need to find and the answers mm. that we really must not just find, but we must enforce. We've got to be proud as Africans. Listen, we are beautiful. We are diverse. And we've got it. 100%. We've got it, yeah. Lee. Look at us. Look at me and you. We've got it. So let's go and change the, the, the narrative. I love this. You're just making me like, I'm already very passionate about the continent, the African continent as a whole, yeah. you know, which is quite weird yeah. because um, when I finished <laughs> high school, I was begging, you know, I spent a lot of time traveling, going to Canada for holidays or whatever, mm. you know, the typical mm. story, like we had family all over. And mm. I literally from high, I think from high school into uni, I was begging to go overseas mm. as in my aunt like had a t had our visas everything my dad is like no you know i am so grateful yeah. that he said no because i might have been one of those people who left and never came mm. back and i might have missed out on what is happening in africa now and being able to do a very small part in in the whole the whole thing yeah. and seeing the the continent kind of take its place in terms of being global center stage yeah. so yeah but you know so i'm already very passionate about it and just hearing you speak mm you describe things and you tell stories in such a way that that makes me feel like I want to read books and books and books and like novels about Africa. Yeah. Like yeah. I want to, I want to travel through to different places. Like that's the way that you describe it and you, you mm -hmm. narrate things. It's so powerful. I hope that you, I mean, I, could, I don't know if I missed that you're an author, but you know, <laughs> if you yet. aren't, I think, I think that you'd be honestly, I think that you'd be a fantastic fictional author. I think your life mm. story is great, but I think you could tell a beautiful fiction story mm. that would literally make people see the continent in, in different ways. So, yeah, I also have yeah. to say that we don't all have to live on the continent to do what the continent needs, by the way. Of course, we anywhere, of course we work, yeah. anywhere we work, anywhere we thrive, anywhere we think our family does better. I believe that your decision to be wherever you want to be is your personal decision. But but I, I had a, a privilege of hosting the Black Stars Awards and I met a lot of Ghanaians, mm. you know, surgeons and, and politicians and the like. And, you know, some of them left Ghana when they were, when they were toddlers, some of them were born there, whatever it is. Um, um, American mm. accents or not, at the core is their passion for Africa, which I also fell in love yeah. with. So uh, the world, yeah. the word multi-layered, which you use, um, is also essential in this conversation in that the African mm. narrative is also very multi-layered, being told by a plethora of, course, of people. Yeah. And I believe that everyone has a right to that story, even if you were not necessarily born on the continent. Um, um, and the people, who's, who, you know, people who've never been to the continent, but they have this passion they cannot explain. Um, so, so that's yeah. what makes it exciting. You know? But ultimately, exactly. it, I think at the core is to be able to create that collective for whom or for which we have the same vision and the same ambition which is to elevate the continent every which way we can. Anita, so um, mm. is there a possibility of you ever running for like a government office, nope. presidential? Nope. nope. 
Nope. <laughs> well, you said that so quickly. I've never no, heard no, you no, say no. no so quickly. You're like, no. Uh, dear, my dear friend, no. <laughs> I have learned that the president is, 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 is the chief executive of the government. Um, and the president yeah. is the president of any country. Then you have the people in government who are assigned different tasks. Um, but the people in government also work with other people um, who help mm. them achieve their tasks. And I'm mm. happy to be one of the people who help the people in government to achieve their tasks. I'm happy to be um, okay. a citizen of any country. Um, I'm happy to be mm. a daughter of Africa who can be called upon by any African government to do what uh, the people, the citizens need. Um, and in, in, in seeing you know, my father go through what he went through um, in the same vein in realizing that he still was able to build his legacy by serving um, in different capacities, I realized that I can serve my people in different capacities. I don't need to be a president or a prime minister or a minister. I can still serve the people. Um, I think the president, the prime ministers and the like, they have their job cut out for them. That's them. Um, something calls them to that. They have a special calling. My calling is not in governance or politics at all. My calling is to serve the people from a different perspective, a different angle. And I think collectively we can, we can do what we need to do. Two final questions. The one question that I did want to ask you about this, because I could have asked you about all of the amazing people that you've worked with mm. and people that, I mean, I, I think that there's a story about how you, you asked Jack Ma for more mm-hmm. than what they were giving. <laughs> You know, you had the ability, yes. you had the confidence to ask for more, which yeah. is amazing. I'm yeah. like, Anita, I would have been sitting there like, oh, I'm just happy to be here. But I think with Kumla um, Damore, um, you know, yeah, I would say Kumla Damore, you know, who is a journalist, a Ghanaian journalist, who for me was one of the people I know watching his TED talk really made me feel like, wow, this whole Africa thing is a thing. You know, I knew it, but it's like he made me feel feel it in my bones now mm. i know that um that was one of the people that you met when you were i think you were coming back and forth between canada yeah. and ghana yeah. and just that conversation because he's such he's such an icon in journalism mm. in mm. you know pushing forward the african narrative the africa agenda like somebody who really loved the continent mm. and his life was was cut so short he was so young yeah. what was the conversation like with him you know um for you that really changed your mind or made you see what was possible and it has impacted your career 2002, June 2002, I had a job as an, well, an intern and migrated into like a a junior administrator at the first black owned radio station in Toronto, in Canada called Flow 93.5, owned and and run by Mr. Denham Jolly, who today continues to be, you know, one of the foremost black business owners, business minds, you know, freedom fighters. I mean, I could say all these things. And um, when I joined Flow 93.5, I felt that even as an African, I was having to figure out what it meant to be black. Because when you live on the mm. continent, you're not black. Yeah, that's true. When you go into, a, into another space, you become a black person. Yeah, that's true. And I didn't know what it meant to be black. I, what was the thing? What, what, I don't understand. What does it mean to be black? Um, and I remember in that radio station learning about, you know, how various, you know, about, about the, the black history, about how a lot of our brothers and sisters from the Caribbean um, had moved to study in Canada and had become Canadian and they were fighting for, you know, Underground Railroad, all those stories. And it was fueling. Hey, Lee, even now when I'm talking about it, I feel a burn in my tummy. It was fueling something, fueling something. I couldn't categorize it. I couldn't characterize it. I couldn't describe it. June 2002, I sent a message to Komlad Dumont, 
and I had his phone number because he had interviewed my father, you know, um, at the time. And I called my father and I said, oh, I really wanted to connect with Komla. And he said, oh, okay, you know, look into his, his yellow page. No, no, he has yellow pages. He had a blue book. You know, okay, the number yeah. is last two, three, three. Anyway, give me the phone number. <laughs> and I sent a message to, to Komla and I said, this is who I am. You know, my father is a person, you know, with, with due respect, he gave me your number and this is what is happening. And he said, you know what, let's talk. So in that conversation, the first question was, first of all, I know you used to sing. What are you using your voice for? And I said, what kind of question mm-hmm. is that? I mean, like, I need you to help me to figure out what I'm doing here. Um, he said, mm-hmm. no, what are you using your voice for? Like, it's a legitimate question. And I said, oh, I, I don't know. I don't sing anymore and whatever it is. But okay. But you know, the singing voice and the talking voice are the same voice, you know? And I said, yes. So you can train the talking voice to sound like a singing voice. Essentially, what he was saying was, you are learning all this stuff around you. You are going to have to learn to adapt that singing voice into a musical talking voice so that you can tell African stories. I tell you, Lee, at the time, I didn't understand a single word that the brilliant Komla Duma was talking about. I was like, ah, it's beginning to not make sense to me. What are you talking about? And then he said, listen, mm-hmm. I'm really busy, etc. But you, when you do come to Ghana on vacation, book a meeting, come by the radio station. He was working at Joy FM at the time and let's talk. And that's what I did. And he said, listen, it is not simple, but it's straightforward. Told him what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to pursue media, etc. He said, listen, you've got to have a speciality. As doctors have the general medicine, as, as lawyers have, you know, they, they, they practice so must you also practice a speciality in your career. So if you want mm-hmm. that speciality to be about telling African stories, the beauty of Africa, if you like, you've got to mold your voice and understand what makes us so beautiful as a people, as a collective, as diverse individuals. And that's what I started mm-hmm. to do at the time. And which is why by the time I moved back to Ghana from Canada, Studio 53 was a launch pad for the application and telling the African story. And that was hugely inspired mm. by the specific guidance from Komla Duma in saying, you cannot just have a singing voice. You cannot just have a talking voice. It needs to be molded, literally like iron through fire. You need to hammer it. You mm. need to cultivate it. Even in your interviews, they have to sound musical, even if you're, even if you're criticizing somebody. You have to make people fall in love with this art of storytelling. But it cannot be storytelling from, hey, I'm a storyteller. No, you've got to have perspective. And he taught me to see mm-hmm. Africa as that perspective. But just to finish off, he also taught me that not only because you want to tell the African story, must you only lean towards what is the positive. To show balance, to show balance, mm-hmm. you must tell all sides. But at the end of every African story, you must show what potential solution there is, even if you just told a dire and negative story. So that you don't leave your audience mm. thinking, oh, this is daunting, this is sad, this is, you know, dehumanizing, this is the end. But you leave your audience saying, I know that my continent has this problem and I am committed to helping to solve this problem. And that's what makes us grow. And that's my relationship with Komla Dumo. And that's that's essentially what his gift, his intelligence, and his boldness, um, that's the impact it had on me. 
I love that. That's so powerful. Um, I know that in his TED talk, there was a part where he said people thought that he was Nigerian because yeah. of his confidence. I'm like, you even, you even, Anita, yourself, you speak like a Nigerian woman, the confidence, the, you know, the knowing. But in closing, <laughs> in closing, um, mm-hmm. you know, the season of the podcast, visionaries are always revisioning. Mm. You know, it's, it's about people, but you know, it's about people who have the ability to rebuild to redream to reimagine you know mm-hmm. so for you in closing when you think of the term visionaries are always revisioning in in the context of your life or anything that sparks off what what comes to your mind what comes to mind is paying attention to what the world is asking and needing paying attention to how i can use my craft my voice my skills my experience to influence the world that i'm living in not only for the for the betterment, as the one may say, of, of, of the generation to come, but for my own ability to help to mold the world to be a better place. And I think that um, COVID alone taught me that anything can happen, anything can cross you. But if mm-hmm. you are not connected to, if you're not plugged in on the power of evolution, in, in, in this instance, even the power of innovation, um, looking at Lee, where you're speaking, where I'm speaking, the fact that we're in different parts of the world, but we are connecting. Um, I think it takes visionaries to understand that though the goal is the same, how we do it and how we pursue and how we reach our audience from the perspective of a media person, because that's who I am, must always find its new terrain. We must always find a new platform. We must always find a new way of doing that. And also the concept of you know, vision and revisioning is also really, it's, it's, it's steeped in the voice of tomorrow and the voice of tomorrow being the voice of the generation, both born and yet unborn and the kind of world that you want to leave Mm -hmm. to them. So if you know that you want them to inherit a world where they say thank you to you, you've got to start envisioning the kind of world they will inherit and how you can plug into the various things that are that you have access to and how you can exploit what you have access to in order to make the world a better place. So today we're telling stories. Today we're using the digital platforms to tell stories. And that kind of digital platform will be there forever, hopefully, fingers crossed. But it's in what we say right now. It's how we use what we have access to and how we think about how that digital platform will change in a year or two and what kinds of conversations we need to be having at that time that will benefit the generation that is coming. Anita, there are more than answers in my question. Thank I feel you. like as though I should be paying you money for consultancy <laughs> in general. <laughs> Jokes aside, it's just been, a, yeah, I mean... I actually don't have the words. I want to find like some big word to use or like a great phrase or great quotes, but no, I think everything that's, you know, has been said, it's this conversation has far exceeded my heart and my spirit expectations and my mind. Um, Yeah. And again, you know, um, you know, I always feel that it's so important that people know, you know, about people's stories. I feel yeah. that's so important. And I can never thank you enough for the impact that you've had in my life. You don't actually know, but part of the reason I've had the courage to start my own business mm. as a as an entrepreneur to yeah. have the podcast has been because of you and Aww. the strange conversations when you don't even know why you're calling and telling me, but it mm. has been because of that. I think that there've been times when even recently in Ghana, where we've met the uh, yeah. the time when you interviewed me on your show, Shiro's, yeah. before that and the week before that, I actually was going through one of the most devastating times in my life. Wow. And I literally, you know, when you asked me to be interviewed, 
I literally was just like, oh, it's Anita. I've got to do it, you know. Yeah. But I left there and it's like you dropped a God seed in my heart and Ooh. in my spirit. You literally Amen. picked me. You were, That interview you literally picked me up from Amen. like I was splattered all over. Emotionally, Amen. personally, everything, everything. My whole life was like splattered. So wow. you're, I'm so grateful to you and just I'm to grateful. know you. And I don't take it for granted that I have access to you. I'm and yeah, Anita Erskine. Or say the, the Anita Erskine. The Anita Erskine. You're like the. You know, the. I love it. The and Anita I also Erskine. say that. Um, the, <laughs> I, I also say for the, for the benefit of our, of our listeners. And I also say that um, cradle relationships with respect. Um, it doesn't matter what that relationship seems like. But cradle relationships mm. with respect. I mean, pray for the person with whom you have that relationship. Um, often we only pray for our mother, our father, our, our brother and our sister, but also pray for your friends um, and pray for what they're going through that may either positively impact mm. you or that you can help them from it or prevent it from it negatively impacting them. I think we're in a world where mm. we have access to a lot. And we're all going through a lot, but we can also really forget that just because it seems Lee is doing well and I'm, I'm listening to her podcast doesn't necessarily mean she's okay. Just because Anita is sitting on a world stage mm-hmm. somewhere doesn't necessarily mean she's okay. So I think that's what we have. We have the ability to understand that beyond it all, beyond all of what the world seems to see, we are very human and we respect that humanness and there is no judgment. And that's why we are the friends we are. They were on a mission to empower me, right? But at the time when all of that was happening, there was a lot of breakdown, even in my personal life. It was just a moment where everything just crashed. And looking back now, I know why it happened. But when it happened, I was just like, what in the world is happening? 